welcome to a special primer edition of the RipperCast. These podcasts don't follow our traditional format as they are aimed at providing basic information to the student who is new to the case. In this episode, we focus on the lives, not the deaths, of the Ripper victim. Presenting the known life stories of these women of Whitechapel are noted Ripper researcher and author Jennifer Sheldon and her husband Neil Sheldon, who is the author of the recently released Mary Jane Kelly and the Victims of Jack the Ripper. We thank them for being here and taking the time to present these important stories. In 1902, author Jack London spent six weeks living amidst the squalor of Whitechapel. In his book, titled The People of the Abyss, he wrote of his experiences and the state of humanity he found there. Everything is helpless, hopeless, unrelieved, and dirty. Bathtubs are a thing totally unknown, as mythical as the ambrosia of the gods. The people themselves are dirty, while any attempt at cleanliness becomes howling farce when it is not pitiful and tragic. Strange, vagrant odors come drifting along the greasy wind, and the rain, when it falls, is more like grease than water from heaven. The very cobblestones are scummed with grease. He stated, There are more people than there is room, and numbers are in the workhouse because they cannot find shelter elsewhere. Not only are houses let, but they are sublet, and sub-sublet down to the very rooms. A part of a room to let. This notice was posted a short while ago in a window not five minutes' walk from St. James Hall. He wrote that the people there pass their lives at work and in the streets. They have dens and lairs into which to crawl for sleeping purposes, and that is all. He claimed the people were steeped and stupefied in beer, and stated, Unhealthy working and living engenders unhealthy appetites and desires. Man cannot be worked worse than a horse is worked, and be housed and fed as a pig is housed and fed, and at the same time have clean and wholesome ideals and aspirations. It is little wonder, therefore, that he found Whitechapel on the whole to be nothing more than a huge man-killing machine. And it was in this killing machine that Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly found themselves during the autumn of 1888. Mary Ann Nichols is the first of the canonical victims of Jack the Ripper. She was born Mary Ann Walker on the 26th of August 1845. The family lived at Dawes Court of Fetter Lane, which was in the city of London. She was the second child of Edward and Caroline Walker, who were both from the Lambeth area and had married in 1840. Her older brother, Edward, had been born in 1843. Her father was a locksmith and then later a blacksmith. By the time of the 1851 census, the family lived at nearby 14 Dean Street, also a lodging house off Fetter Lane. Her mother, Caroline Walker, died in 1852 and was buried on the 5th of December at St Andrews Holborn. She had a younger brother called Frederick and he had died too. Edward Walker took his two remaining children a short distance to live at 19 Harp Alley. Harp Alley was once twice the length it is at present and came out at its western end in Shoe Lane. On the 16th of January 1864, Mary married a printer at St Bride's Church named William Nichols. Nichols came from Oxford and lived at Bouvier Street off Fleet Street. According to information recently uncovered by Mark Ripper, a Ripper researcher and author, the couple had a son born on the 17th of December 1864, named William Edward Walker Nichols, and christened the next month at St Bride. But the boy must have died because he's no longer with them uh, later on. They lived at 17 Kirby Street at this time. Together they then moved across the River Thames to Camberwell in South London. 
On the 4th of July 1866, Mary gave birth to a son, Edward John Nichols. Another son, Percy George, was born in 1868. Both boys were christened on the 9th of August of that year at St Peter's Woolworth. In 1870, a daughter, Alice Esther, was born. By then, the couple with their three children lived at 131 Trafalgar Street, St Saviour's Southwark, along with Mary's father, Edward Walker. In 1876, the Nichols family began living in the newly built Peabody Estate in Duchy Street, Lambeth. The estate was one of a number, the first of which was built in Spitalfields and had opened in 1864. George Peabody, a philanthropist, set up the estates in order to help ease the poverty that he witnessed in London. Occupants of the Peabody estates were the respectable working class and the residents were required to adhere to a set of standards in order to stay. On the 31st of July, Mary and her family took residence at tenement number 3, Block D, that had four rooms at a rent of 6 shillings 8 pence per week, with rates of 1 shilling 7 pence. William was working for 30 shillings per week as a printer for William Clowes and Sons of Duke Street. Close by, at number 5, in the same block, lived a young woman named Rosetta Walls. Whilst Mary was in confinement with her fourth child, William and Rosetta began an affair. Mary, while staying at number three, Block I, gave birth to Eliza Sarah Nichols. She returned home to William by February of the next year and on the 4th of June, 1877, they moved to the cheaper number six, Block D, where there were only three rooms at a rent of five shillings per week plus rates of one shilling twopence. Their last son, Henry Alfred, was born there on the 4th of December, 1878. By 1880, Mary appears to have had enough of William's affair with Rosetta because the couple separated for the last time during the Easter of that year. Mary left home, leaving the children behind with their father, citing his infidelity as the cause, although he later blamed her alcoholism, and denied the affair at a maintenance hearing. William went on to have five children with Rosetta, at least two of which were born when Mary was still alive. Meanwhile, Mary's eldest son, Edward John, went to live with his paternal grandfather, Edward Walker. During 1882 and 1883, Mary was admitted to the Lambeth Workhouse at Renfrew Road, she then resumed some level of respectability by living with her father and afterwards a widower named Thomas Stuart Drew of Walworth. Drew was a blacksmith and father of three children, whose wife had died in 1884. Edward Walker last saw his daughter at the funeral of his eldest son and namesake on the 5th of June 1886 at Camberwell Old Cemetery. Edward Walker Jr. died when a paraffin lamp exploded at his home, giving him severe burns to his face and chest, all of which was reported in the local newspaper. Unfortunately, the bereaved father and Mary were not on speaking terms at the cemetery due to bad feeling from the previous years. On the 25th of October 1887, Mary entered St Giles Workhouse in Endnor Street, West London. The next day, she left for Edmonton Workhouse and, at a later date, she returned to Lambeth Workhouse, where she spent her last Christmas. She then went on to Mitcham Workhouse, where an order of removal soon sent her back to Renfrew Road on the 16th of April 1888. In response to her good conduct at the workhouse, the matron, Mrs Fielder, procured employment for her at a house called Ingleside in Wandsworth. She wrote to her father on the 12th of May to reassure him that she was doing well. The letter read, I just write to say you will be glad to know that I am settled in my new place and all going right up to now. My people went out yesterday and have not returned, so I am left in charge. It is a grand place inside, with trees and gardens back and front. All has been newly done up. They are teetotalers and religious, so I ought to get on. They are very nice people and I have not much to do. I hope you are all right and the boy has work, so goodbye for the present. From yours truly, Polly. But on the 14th of July, the workhouse received news that she had absconded, taking with her goods to the value of £3.10. 
From then on, she wandered the streets and public houses until, unbeknown to family and friends, she crossed the river and settled herself amongst the East End community at either 18 Fall Street or 56 Flower and Dean Street. To pay for her lust for the bottle, she would earn pennies as a prostitute, something she may have done in the previous years, according to her father and husband. When she died, she was aged 43 and described as 5 foot 2 inches tall, with dark brown hair turning grey, brown eyes, a dark complexion, two teeth missing, a good figure and a small childhood scar on her head that her husband said was made large years before when she was knocked down by a cab in Lambeth. She always kept herself clean and tidy and her character was described as good-tempered. Her nickname was Polly. After her fatal meeting with Jack the Ripper on the morning of the 31st of August 1888, she was laid to rest at the City of London Cemetery on the 6th of September. Annie Chapman, the second canonical victim. Annie's father, George Smith, was from Waddington in Lincolnshire. He had enlisted in London as a private in the 2nd Regiment of Lifeguards in 1834. The lifeguards was known as the Queen's personal bodyguard and part of the household cavalry. His military service required annual manoeuvres from one barracks to another, including Hyde Park in Kensington, Upper Albany Street, Regent's Park and Windsor. It's very likely that George met Annie's mother in London. Annie's mother came from Sussex and her name was Ruth Chapman. A family bible reveals that Annie was born on the 25th of September 1840. George and Ruth married on the 22nd of February 1842 at St. James Church, Paddington. The couple christened her Annie Eliza Smith on the 23rd of April at Christchurch St. Pancreas. The church was local to where George was stationed at Upper Albany Street by Regent's Park, but their address was recorded on the register as Knightsbridge. At the same church on the 2nd of June 1844, a brother was christened and named George William Thomas Smith. A sister, Emily Letitia, was born in November of 1844, while the family lived at 4 Rutland Terrace in Knightsbridge. She was christened at Holy Trinity Church in Brompton on the 8th of December. The family had moved again to 3 Montpellier Place. We can assume that all of the children received a good standard of education, or at least that Annie's education was superior to those of the other victims. In 1854, another son, William Smith, was christened on the 1st of February at Christchurch St Pancreas, but he died and was buried on the 3rd of June at Holy Trinity in Brompton. The family by then lived at Raphael Street at the time, and sadly their eldest son died aged 12 and was buried only 13 days after his younger brother. According to one of the sisters, reported after Annie's death, Annie started drinking when she was quite young, and that she and her siblings had been the children of intemperate parents. It was said that overindulgence in drink affected the health of many soldiers. Two more sisters were born in the parish of Clure in Windsor, Georgina in 1856 at 12 Keppel Terrace and Miriam Ruth in 1858. The last sibling, Fountain Hamilton Smith, was born on the 25th of February 1861 back in London, at 6 Middle Row North, Knightsbridge. But when the census was taken that year, the family had once again returned to live at 7 Keppel Terrace in Clure. Annie had left home by then and was probably recorded on the census as Annie Smith, a servant living in Westminster. By 1864, Annie's father, George Smith, had left the army but was alleged to have committed suicide by cutting his own throat. Alcohol was blamed. Ruth's name first appears as a resident on the rape books for that year at 29 Montpellier Place, Knightsbridge. Montpellier Place was a mixture of skilled and unskilled workers and not the posh area that it is today. From her mother's address, Annie married on the 1st of May 1869 to a coachman named John Chapman at All Saints Church in Knightsbridge.
No evidence he was related to Annie's mother despite the same surname. Witness George White to the marriage was a fellow coachman and lived at One Brooks Mews North in Bayswater. John and Annie went to live there soon after their wedding. Annie gave birth to her first child on the 25th of June 1870, back for a time at her mother's house at Montpellier Place. The child, a girl, was christened Emily Ruth Chapman at All Saints Church. The second daughter followed on the 5th of June 1873 and was called Annie Georgina with another middle name of June added on the christening register. John and Annie gave their address as 17 South Bruton Mews in Mayfair. It's likely that John was working for a nobleman at nearby Bond Street at the time, but probably lost his job due to his wife's dishonesty. It's also likely that in order to escape the shame, the couple moved away from London altogether and found a home at Walter Oakley in Bray, just west of Windsor in Berkshire. Sadly, their eldest daughter, Emily Ruth, began to suffer with epileptic fits from 1878, and it is likely that up to that time, Annie had other children that may not have survived infancy. She gave birth to another daughter on the 16th of July, 1879, and named her Miriam Lilly, but the child died of convulsions on the 3rd of October. Annie gave birth in the 21st of November, 1880, to a boy, John Alfred. He was paralysed, but it's unclear as to how he became paralysed or whether it was from birth. It was later said that she had taken him to London for a time to place him in a hospital. Her sister blamed her alcoholism for his condition, and Annie and her children were living at her mother's house in Knightsbridge on the 1881 census, and this could have been the time of the visit to the hospital. On the same census, John lived in the apartments over a farm cottage on the land of a mansion at St. Leonard's Hill in Clure. He worked as a coachman and domestic servant to local philanthropist Francis Tresbury. Both of the daughters attended school, and it was alleged that one in particular was educated at a highly respectable ladies' school in Windsor, with the cost of her tuition being defrayed by one of Annie's sisters. On the 26th of November, 1882, eldest daughter Emily Ruth died aged 12 of meningitis after suffering for five days. Annie may not have been at home when her daughter died. Later newspaper reports suggest that her drinking habits made it imperatively necessary that she should reside elsewhere than on the gentleman's grounds. John reluctantly obliged to separate from his wife, who was well known in the neighbourhood of Clure and Windsor and was seen wandering about the area like a common tramp. Annie's sisters, who were religious converts, had tried some years before to persuade her to sign an abstinence pledge. She did so, but kept resorting back to the bottle. At one time, she went into the home for the cure of the intemperate, and John paid 12 pence per week for her to stay there. She sobered up, but only temporarily. When Annie left Windsor in about 1884, she left for London and the hovels of Spitalfields, where she resorted to prostitution. In October 1885, she could be the same woman charged with stealing a hammer at the Thames Magistrates Court. John sent a family Bible to his daughter that year, Annie Georgina, for a birthday present, suggesting the children had gone to live with relatives, probably in Knightsbridge. John Chapman died on Christmas Day 1886 at Grove Road in New Windsor after suffering for six months with cirrhosis of the liver, ascites and dropsy. Coachmen were often offered drinks at pubs for bringing in customers and this could have been the cause of his cirrhosis of the liver. John resigned his job in the summer and 10 shillings per week he sent to Annie payable to her at the commercial road had stopped. A tramp-like woman called at the Merry Wives of Windsor pub in Spittle Row, Clure. Annie had walked all the way from London and slept overnight at a lodging house in Colnbrook. Told of her husband's illness by her brother-in-law in the East End, she had walked across town to find out whether it was true. The landlord saw her leave the pub and she was never seen in the area again. 
Back in Spitalfield, she began a relationship with a man named Edward Stanley, and prior to that, gained the nickname of Dark Annie Civvy because she once lived there with a man who made sieves. Her usual dos was at Crossingham's Lodging House, 35 Dorset Street, and from there she walked away for the last time on the morning of the 8th of September, 1888, to meet with her killer, Jack the Ripper. She was described as five feet tall, blue eyes, she had a large prominent nose, a fair complexion, dark brown wavy hair. She was stout, well proportioned, with two teeth deficient. She was clever and industrious and would go to Stratford East to sell crochet work and baskets that she'd made, or to sell flowers in the street. She was very respectable, quiet and a sociable woman, never used bad language, well educated and often read in her leisure time. She died aged 47, close in time to her next birthday, and unbeknown to her, she was already dying from a disease of the lungs and brain. She was buried at Manor Park Cemetery on the 12th of September, 1888. The next of the victims of Jack the Ripper was Elizabeth Stride. Elizabeth was Swedish, and much of her Swedish history has been researched by Klaas Lifner and Dan Olsen. She was born Elizabeth Gustafsdotter on the 27th of November 1843 in the parish of Torslander in Sweden. She is the second of four children with an older sister, Anna Christina, and two younger brothers, Carl and Savante, belonging to Gustav Eriksson, a small farm owner, and his wife, Beta Karlstotter, who married in 1839. She attended a local parish school. Her sister married in Gothenburg. Elizabeth, too, began working there as a domestic servant from about 1860, but in 1865 she ended up in a hospital for venereal diseases and also gave birth to a stillborn girl in April. She was also entered into the prostitutes register of the Gothenburg plea. She briefly gained work as a servant again before receiving an inheritance from her mother who died the previous year that meant Elizabeth would leave Sweden. In 1866 Elizabeth arrived in England and made her way to London's East End where on the 10th of July she was registered at the Swedish church St George in the East. She shortened her name to Gustafsson and was said to have found work as a domestic servant to a gentleman's family living in the West End of London. On the 7th of March 1869 she married John Thomas Stride at St Giles in the Field Church. Almost twice her age, Stride had been brought up as a Wesleyan Methodist in Kent. He was a carpenter by trade. Elizabeth had been lodging at 67 Gower Street, and she chose to give a false name for her father on the register. The couple then moved to East London, where John Thomas opened up a coffee hall at Upper North Street Poplar. In 1871, they moved to another coffee hall at 178 Poplar High Street, but during 1874-5, they lived three doors along at number 172. This address was perhaps a lodging house for foreign seamen. Elizabeth was known at that time by the publican of the Blakeney's Head as Mother Gum on account of a peculiarity of her top lip, which, when she laughed, showed the whole of the upper gum. On the 21st of March 1877, she was recorded as being taken from the Thames Police Court by a police constable back to the Poplar Workhouse. The next year, Elizabeth tried to get some money from the Mansion House Fund set up to give aid to the families of the victims of the Princess Alice Paddle Steamer disaster. She pretended her husband had perished and continued to tell the story for the rest of her life. At one time or another, she claimed to have had many children, but there's no evidence for this. It could be possible that she had some children who were stillborn. Her father died in Sweden in 1879, but it was not known as to whether she was told or whether she was in communication with her family after leaving Sweden. On the 1881 census, she lived with her husband at 69 Usher Road Bow. Later that year, the couple separated. Their alcoholism was considered to be one of the causes. 
John Thomas Stride died in 1884 at the Poplar Workhouse. Elizabeth, suffering from bronchitis, was admitted to the Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary on the 28th of December 1881. She gave her address as Brick Lane, where she had lived for the past fortnight. She left the infirmary on the 4th of January 1882 and entered the workhouse for three days before being discharged. She began lodging at 32 Flower and Dean Street, where she often returned up until the time of her death. She appeared at the Thames Magistrates Court again in November 1884, charged with being drunk and disorderly and soliciting prostitution with her usual haunts being Commercial Road East, Stratford and Bow. The next year she became acquainted with an Irish dock labourer named Michael Kidney and she lived with him intermittently at Devonshire Street, Commercial Road. Kidney objected to her going under the streets and at times probably resorted to violence. In January 1887, Elizabeth made a complaint of assault against him, and after a short stay on the 24th of March at St George in the East Infirmary, she repeated the charge but again failed to turn up at the court to prosecute. She appeared before the court several times for charges of being drunk and disorderly, and on the 15th of July 1888, she was taken by a police constable to Poplar Workhouse from Limehouse District and ordered to attend the court the next day. Her last court entry shows she failed to appear for a charge on the 3rd of September 1888. Elizabeth was described as 5 feet 5 inches tall with a slender figure, blue eyes, dark curly hair, a straight nose, oval face, a pale complexion, with all her teeth absent on the left lower jaw. Her nickname, used at the Spitalfields Lodging House, was Long Liz, and she was a very popular, good-natured and hard-working lodger. She was also considered to be a good cook and expert in the use of a sewing machine, knitting and all other kinds of needlework. She died aged 44, the first victim of Jack the Ripper on the morning of the 30th of September 1888. She was buried in a public grave on the 6th of October at the East London Cemetery. Catherine Eddowes, fourth canonical victim. Catherine was born in Staffordshire on the 14th of April 1842. The daughter of George and Catherine Eddowes' family moved on soon after to Merrydale Street. Catherine was baptised on the 26th of April at St Peter's Church in Wolverhampton. Five elder siblings, Alfred, Harriet, Emma, Eliza and Elizabeth, had already been born to the couple, and their father, George, worked as a tin plate worker at the Old Hall Works that was one of the largest Japanning factories in the Midlands. Wolverhampton was part of the black country, where it was said that black soot covered the areas from heavy industries. A year after Catherine's birth, George took his family down to London and reached the city on a barge up the River Thames. He obtained employment as a tin plate worker at Perkins and Sharpers of Belcourt in the city of London, but probably lost his job when the workers went on strike. A brother named Thomas Eddowes was born on the 9th of December 1844, whilst the family lived at Forbarden Place in Bermondsey on the south side of the river. In 1846, another boy, George, was born and then John in January 1849. They were born at the new address of 35 West Street. However, John unfortunately died aged only two months on the 18th of March. Catherine attended the Dowgate Charity School in the City of London. Charity schools were set up to help poor children to read and write and were usually maintained by religious organisations. As Catherine grew up, she became known to her siblings by the affectionate nickname of Chick because she was considered to be a lively little thing warm-hearted and entertaining. In 1850, a sister was born in Bermondsey and named Sarah Ann, then another, Mary, followed in 1852. The Edo sisters became collectively known as the Seven Sisters. 
The death of the youngest sibling, William Eddowes, in 1854, aged only four months, began a tragic chain of events that would see the breakup of the family in a typical way for the lower classes of the Victorian era. Catherine's mother and namesake died of tuberculosis aged 42 on the 17th of November 1855. The family were then living at Seven Winter Square and two years later the father, aged 49, also died. On the 9th of December 1857 the younger Edo siblings were admitted as orphans to the Bermondsey workhouse with Thomas admitted the next day. Two weeks later George, Thomas and Mary were admitted to the industrial school in Sutton to learn a trade. Sarah Ann followed on in 1858. Meanwhile, the four elder sisters managed to get Catherine back to Wolverhampton to live with her uncle and aunt, William and Elizabeth Eddowes, at 50 Bilston Street. Catherine worked as a scourer and a tin plate stamper at the old hall works where her uncle still worked. She didn't keep her job for long because of stealing, so she ran away in about 1862 to live with another uncle, Thomas Eddowes, in Birmingham at the Brick Hill in Beggart Street. She obtained work as a trade polisher in Leg Street, but later on made her way back to Wolverhampton to live with her grandfather, Thomas Eddowes. She returned to Birmingham, met with an Irish hawker called Thomas Conway, who drew a pension from the 1st Battalion of the 18th Royal Irish Regiment, under the name of Thomas Quint. Thomas would have had to queue up at a designated place to receive his pension, paid monthly or quarterly in advance. Catherine had his initials TC tattooed onto her forearm in blue ink and always told people that they had been legally married, despite the fact that it wasn't true. Generally, they spent their time as a common-law husband and wife going from place to place selling chapbooks. These contained stories, they were cheaply produced and priced booklets, sometimes with crude illustrations from woodcuts. They also sold gallows ballads. These were poems about the soon-to-be-hung sold to those attending hangings. In both cases, the contents was written by Conway. Their first child, Catherine Ann Conway, was born on the 18th of April 1863 at Yarmouth Workhouse in Norfolk. Catherine registered the child on the 13th of May, giving her own name as Catherine Conway. In 1865, her grandfather died, and only a year later, Catherine and Thomas were in the crowds at the execution of her cousin, Christopher Charles Robinson at Stafford Jail. They mingled in amongst the 4,000 strong crowds selling gallows ballads about her cousin's crime. By 1868, they were living in clean and comfortable lodgings at Westminster in London, and a son, Thomas, was born there. In 1871, they lived south of the Thames at Queen Street in Southwark. Catherine worked as a laundress. By 1873, she gave birth to another son, Alfred George Conway, on the 15th of August at St George's Workhouse at Mint Street. She called herself Kate Conway and gave her address as 119 Kent Street, and the child was christened at the workhouse before mother and child were discharged. Emma Jones, Catherine's eldest sister, last met her in 1877, when it was evident from her blackened eyes that she had suffered from Conway's brutality. Jones also believed that her sister had given birth to other children, not all of which were Conway's, and knew about her sister's alcoholism. In 1881, the family lived at 71 Lower George Street, Chelsea. Both sons attended school, but before the end of the year, Thomas parted from his wife and took his sons with him. He blamed Catherine's drinking habits. Catherine left the West End for the East End, where her sister Eliza Gold already lived in Spitalfields area, and at times Catherine resorted to prostitution. She would also earn money working for the Jewish community in and around Brick Lane. She met with a market porter named John Kelly and began living with him at 55 Flower and Dean Street, where she became a popular figure and known as Mrs Kelly to the other lodgers. 
On the 21st of September 1881, Catherine was charged with being drunk and disorderly and using obscene language at the Thames Magistrates Court. Magistrate Thomas William Saunders discharged her without a fine. During the following years, Catherine became a grandmother when her daughter Catherine Anne, later known as Annie Conway, gave birth to several children by her husband Louis Phillips in the Bermondsey and Suffolk areas. Annie last saw Catherine around the time of her birth of her third child in August 1886, but she chose to have nothing further to do with her because of her persistence in applying to her for money. Thomas Conway kept the whereabouts of the two boys from Catherine for the same reason. On the 14th of June 1887, Catherine was admitted to the Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary with a burn on her foot. She gave her religion as Roman Catholic and was discharged six days later. During the summer of 1888, Catherine and John went hop-picking to Hunton in Kent. Londoners would go down to Kent in the summer to work on the farmers' hop fields, but the hoppers would often spend their money in the pubs and arrive back in London with nothing left to show for the hard labour. In the same way, uh, Catherine and John arrived back in London on 28th of September, penniless. Catherine was five feet tall, with hazel eyes, a dark complexion and auburn hair. She was hard-working and generous to her friends, very jolly and often to be found singing. When she died, she was carrying all of her meagre possessions on her person. She was the second victim of Jack the Ripper on the morning of the 30th of September 1888 and died aged 46. She was buried at City of London Cemetery in Ilford on the 8th of October. Mary Jane Kelly, the fifth canonical victim. Mary Jane Kelly lived with a man in 1888 named Joseph Barnett, a fish porter. They had met in April 1887 and lived with one another first in George Street, then Paternoster Row, then Brick Lane, and finally, in the last eight months of her life, at a room 13 Millers Court in Dorset Street all within the Spitalfields area of the East End. He left her on the 30th of October because she took in other women to live there. Barnett had Frenchified her name to Mary Jeanette Kelly and after her murder told police and press alike the life history that his deceased lover had told to him. She said she was born in Limerick in Ireland and went to Wales when quite young. He could not remember whether it was Carmarthenshire or Carnarvonshire, but the likelihood was the former due to her father allegedly working at an ironworks and an alleged marriage to a collier. Her father, called John Kelly, was a gaffer at the ironworks and her sister lived with her aunt and went around selling things from place to place. Mary had six brothers, one in the army called Henry, sometimes known as John, who served in the 2nd Battalion of Scots Guards. Barnet had never seen any of her relatives. As previously mentioned, she married a collier at the age of 16 named Davis or Davies. He was killed in a mine explosion after a year or two of marriage. The widowed Mary then went to Cardiff to stay with a cousin for up to eight months. Barnet suggested that the cousin was the cause of her resulting to prostitution. She was also said to have been an inmate of the Cardiff Infirmary for an unspecified reason. Mary Jane came to London in about 1884 and lived in a brothel in the West End. Whilst there, a gentleman asked her to go to France. She went but did not like it and came back after a fortnight. She was then said to have lived on the Ratcliffe Highway near the commercial gasworks with a man named Morganstone. She went to live in Pennington Street and also went on to live with a man named Joseph Fleming at Bethnal Green Road. He was a mason's plasterer. She then met with Barnet and Barnett said that at one time Mary Jane's father had come looking for her, but she kept out of his way. Other people that had known Mary Jane corroborated and also contradicted some of the details given by Joseph Barnett. 
Firstly, a woman called Elizabeth Phoenix of 157 Bow Common Lane in Bow called at Lehman Street Police Station two days after Kelly's murder and made a statement that she later repeated to the press to the effect that three years ago, Mary Jane had resided at her brother-in-law's house at Breezes Hill, Pennington Street, near the docks. She described Mary Jane as five feet, seven inches, stout, with blue eyes, a very fine head of hair which reached nearly down to her waist, and she gave her name as Mary Jane Kelly and stated that she was 22, so she would have been 25 in 1888. At first, she said she was Welsh. Her parents had discarded her, and was still living in Cardiff from when she came to London. This information contradicts Barnet, who said her parents were in Carmarthenshire and only a cousin was in Cardiff. At other times, Phoenix said Mary Jane had said she was Irish. She would be very quarrelsome and abusive when drunk, but decent and a nice girl when sober. Two years ago, Kelly left Breezes Hill and removed to Commercial Road and became a prostitute in Allgate. Strangely to Phoenix, she also described Kelly as having two false teeth, which projected very much away from the lips, and that when she lived at Breezer's Hill, she had a child aged two, though Phoenix never saw the child. Since Mary Jane left the docks area, where she was well known, Phoenix had not seen her again. Interestingly, Phoenix claimed that Mary Jane had a friend named Lizzie Williams. Could Lizzie Williams, with a Welsh-sounding name, have been the origin of Mary Jane's Welsh tale? Another witness in 1888 offered some support for the Welsh history claims. Her name was allegedly Mrs. Carfee of Breezes Hill, and she gave information to the Press Association reporter, along with other unnamed lodgers and companions of Kelly's who lived in the area. Mrs. Carfee said Kelly was Welsh, and like Phoenix, suggested that her parents had resided in Cardiff. That was five to six years before 1888. Kelly left there straight for London. Her parents were very well-to-do people. She described Kelly as an excellent scholar and an artist of no mean degree. On arrival in London, she made the acquaintance of a French woman residing in Knightsbridge in the West End, who led her to pursue prostitution. Again, contradicting Barnet, who suggested Mary had implied that her cousin in Cardiff was to blame. She drove about in a carriage and made several journeys to Paris. She had drifted into the East End to a woman named Mrs. Bukey, who resided in one of the thoroughfares off Ratcliffe Highway. There was St. George Street in 1888. She wasn't long with her when both women went to the French lady's residence in the West End to demand the return of a box of dresses of costly description. Kelly's drunkenness eventually made her unwelcome at Mrs. Bukey's, so she went to live at Mrs. Carthy's at Breezes Hill, Pennington Street. She left 18 months to two years prior to her death and became a prostitute at Allgate. Kelly went to live with a man in the building trade who would have married her. Carthy said Kelly did not have a child. So what conclusions can we draw from witness statements about Mary Jane's story? It appears more likely that her claim to have been born in Ireland rather than Wales is built on more solid ground. A city missionary who was interviewed by the press in 1888 said that her mother lived in Limerick and that he used to hear a good deal about the letters from her mother there. John McCarthy, her landlord at Dorset Street, had said that Kelly's mother lived in Ireland and that she received letters from her occasionally. Despite inquiries made by the Limerick police that were unable to find family connections there, the likelihood is, is that that part of the story appears to be more feasible compared to the tragic Welsh, Welsh tale that could have been borrowed from a friend. In fact, we have to raise the question of Mary Jane Kelly's accent that if not clearly Irish or Welsh to be identifiable, could well lead us to the conclusion that she had spent more time in England than first believed. 
The only information about Mary's life that can now be confirmed beyond the relationship with Joseph Barnett is the recent identification of her associates in Penitent Street area of the East End of London. To recap, a woman allegedly called Elizabeth Phoenix made a statement in 1888 saying that Mary Jane Kelly had lived at a brother-in-law's house in Breezes Hill, Pennington Street, three years previously in 1885. Aside from that, ripperologists Stuart Evans and Nick Connell proposed in their Jack the Ripper book of 2000, The Man Who Hunted Jack the Ripper, that the man Morganstone that Kelly had allegedly had an affair with was a Dutchman, Adrianus Morganstone, who worked as a gas stoker. My wife Jennifer Sheldon was subsequently able to prove that Adrianus Morganstone was living as a common-law husband with a woman called Elizabeth Felix on the 1891 census and that this woman had been Elizabeth Phoenix of 1888. Further proof came to light recently when I was able to find the said brother-in-law, Johannes Morganstone, living at 79 Pennington Street in 1885 and 1886. Amazingly, Johannes was living with a widow named Elizabeth Buki. She was also Dutch, and they had twin daughters. This was the Mrs. Buki who had gone with Mary Jane to collect the dresses from the West End, but afterwards grew tired of Kelly's drunkenness. So the address that Mary Jane Kelly had lived in when she was in the East End was 79 Pennington Street, that up until the mid-1870s had been known as One Breezes Hill, because it stood on the corner of Pennington Street and Breezes Hill. Elizabeth Buki had even lived there before in 1879 and 1880 when her previous husband, Louis Buki, was alive. Mary Jane left there to live with Mrs. Carfee before a short-lived affair with Joseph Fleming eventually meant that she would end up meeting Joseph Barnett and that brought her to Miller's Court on the morning of the 9th of November 1888. Mary Jane Kelly was buried at St. Patrick's Catholic Cemetery at Leightonstone on the 19th of November. This concludes the special Primer Podcast Victims Edition. Our thanks once again to Neil and Jennifer Sheldon. We'd also like to thank Stephen Ryder and Facebook Jack the Ripper for hosting the podcast, and Jonathan Menges, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Until next time. Oi! Stop, stop it. Go outside. Go.